0: This is SBE Talks Tech with Trent Jacobs and Steve Rosenfuss. All right, so welcome to the SBE podcast. Happy New Year. The January issue of JPT is out. And so our plan today was to talk a little bit about some of the reports inside. Amongst other things, we have a big feature on casing failures in horizontal wells written by yours truly And then Steve, you took a dive into some of the differences between tier one and tier two assets in the U.S. shale market. And then you also wrote a report about heavy oil innovation or rather the challenges that that sector faces with using new technology. So why don't we get started with your look at the ways that shale plays are ranked by the uh, sector?
1: Well, I guess in a way it's about looking at where's the value here? And when's it worth it to spend money, when's it not? And this study by Deloitte Energy Consulting was really interesting because they looked at 35,000 actual wells in the Permian and the Eagleford. And they raised a lot of questions that I'm not saying are completely, you know, things we're ta- thinking about, but to put some numbers on things. I mean, ultimately, what you're seeing is that it is what it is, and it's not great. Well, but spell it out for me. Is there a difference between Tier 1 and Tier 2? Well, no. Actually, no. There's tier one, of course, was the, these are both really large designations for those who haven't been following along at home. Tier one was supposed to be the good quality rock. It was the stuff- that The was best quality, to, yeah. Yeah, it was the stuff that was going to produce more than the lower quality tier two or three. Consider it's just like prime and choice stakes or something. The reality has been that when you looked at the charts they produced of the results from these things, you couldn't tell them apart. What's good and what's bad- was about the same for either one, right? And tier two is not necessarily bad. It's just it's sort of the the lesser, the secondary on the bench here, well, and it, it was often talked about as if it really mattered because mm-hmm. uh, I think you probably heard when you listen to financial reports or takeovers or something, people talk about how much tier one acreage they bought or how are they running out of tier one drilling opportunities. And what this is telling you is that the tier one stuff is not really distinguishable from the tier two or the tier three that ultimately what happens on shale is a matter of the intelligence of the people who are doing it how well they pick that specific location the rock changes and it changes unpredictably and quickly it's as the engineers say heterogeneous right so there's no question
0: that it played a uh, you know classifying shale plays into tiers had a uh, played a big role in, in terms of the marketing of the shale sector's assets. But then, you know, 10 years into this shale revolution or maybe 15 years in, they're looking in, they're saying that this is kind of what we hear on the uh, conference circuit a lot. Rock quality matters, but then, good engineering matters too. And I think the nut of this report is that rock was perhaps oversold a little bit in comparison,
1: like you said, to the engineering capabilities. Well, it kind of goes back to what I remember from a few years ago at an Earth Tech conference. Once one guy said, unconventional is just bad quality reservoir rock. So the best of it isn't great. And so it is a question of if you're using cheap meat, you have to be pretty careful as a cook to make it into something that's edible and good. And that's the challenge the industry's facing. And another kind of illusion here is that we all had the sense, didn't you, Trent, that as you heard earnings reports talking about better and better IPs, that they were making a lot of progress and doing a lot of better wells. Yeah, I think uh, generally
0: that was the theme that we heard uh, year after year and we saw it in the data. But then we, we also know that year after year, wells tended to get longer and they tended to have more proppant put in them. So it's hard to sort of normalize, you know, a 2015 data
1: set or, you know, versus something that's been more recently completed. Right. And, and in this study, they looked at it and said, well, OK, if you normalize it and I think it's at 10,000 foot, And you look at the results over multiple years, how are they doing? Are they improving? And what they discovered is that 60% of the wells drilled since 2010 were going to produce less than 750 barrels of oil equivalent, means oil and a lot less valuable gas. Over the last four years, 50% are, are right around that level. So that just means that in the great mass of wells, looking at these big hit wells, wasn't a really good way of understanding what was really going on. When they looked at it and they
0: said that, you know, some companies are doing more with their tier one or more with their tier two than some of their peers, the assumptions were made based on, you know, this company just has more technical talent or did they actually outline any specific operational changes or anything that made these top performers stand out?
1: So what they did was they did create a tier one, tier two map and compared it with industry standards. So you knew they were looking at a realistic thing. They didn't try to get into the, inputs of the intellectual inputs of these things. Right. But they did look at the physical inputs and they specifically the one that was the mantra a few years back, which was use more sand, use more fluid. And what they found, and this is a very kind of an accounting point of view, because after all Deloitte is an accounting firm. And what they're saying is in a lot of cases they were spending too much money on these things. That that when they looked at it, despite putting in 25% more of profit and fluid productivity from 2016-2018 was pretty much flat. So what they're saying is to recognize that perhaps these aren't going to be stellar wells, that you can't turn the chuck roast into filet mignon. You should spend on it what it deserves and look at it and spend less. They found that with the old smaller wells or the lower potential wells, if they put more into it, it didn't turn it into something different.
0: I wonder if if it seems counterintuitive, but is there, you know, we have people like Mark Papa, CEO of Centennial and former head of EOG saying that most of the tier one's been developed. And so I wonder if the lack of a huge delta between tier one and tier two actually could be a blessing in disguise going forward if most of tier one has been exhausted in U.S. shale plays. And then there's more tier two and it performs somewhat similarly to tier one. So maybe there's a silver lining there, but I get it on the aggregate. It seems like this was sort of an unexpected thing. I think we all took tier one, tier two, tier three stuff at face value
1: because yeah, a lot think, of the data wasn't in. I just trying to just maintain the fiction. The report said we're starting to challenge the notion that just investing in established tier one acreage and drilling a longer lateral and pumping more profit means more productive wells. It's just simply a more complicated thing that if you look at the rock, it isn't like the old days where if you put the well in just the right place, it would flow like crazy when you hit that great mother load. That world isn't there now. You know, the later part of the story looked at what engineers are doing to, in their case, look at type wells. What's the typical well in any location to do and trying to chop it and just chopping these reservoirs into much finer, finer pieces that reflect the fact that they change a lot. Right. And then also... That requires dealing with the fact that when you get closer and closer, your data gets thinner and thinner. So the risk that you're wrong and bad wrong is greater. So they're also having to get into fairly complicated work measuring what uncertainty they have. So basically, A, where do you think the good rock is? B, what's the level of uh, doubt you should impose on the decision-making process? All that seems like actually a little bit refreshing for
0: me, I imagine is for you too, just because we've always seen a little bit of disconnect between sort of the IR world of shale and then the heavy duty technical world of shale. And you could point at a number of issues where that exists on this stuff. You know, in a lot of technical discussions, or in almost, you know, the last six, seven years that I've been going to, I can't remember the last time anybody from the technical community referred to anything as a tier one or a tier two asset. What I have heard people talk a lot about is what you were talking about, the heterogeneity and just the amazing amount of difference you can see spatially from a one mile well distance. You know, the rock changes, the pressure can change, the API gravity, the fluid characterizations can change. And so when we see these big blobs on these maps of tier one and tier two, I I always kind of did question the veracity of looking at it that way, just because it seemed way too broad, given all the talks that we go to. And it's like, hey, things change rapidly. Like I said, for
1: mile to mile, these wells are different. These reservoirs are different. Exactly. And as I did this, I just looked at the words tier one in the one petro, which of course is a great source of trying to figure out what engineers think about this basically financial concept barely anything in there and I realized that that's exactly it I was I had this big worry that's like I had what I thought was an interesting idea in the Deloitte thing that would catch people's attention but on the other hand you wonder if the engineer would like send you a message afterwards and saying you think that an area that covers millions of acres is going to be all the same I mean duh it's not and that's why I, I started looking at what they were doing on this other side. And, you know, what they're doing on type wells. And it's a very big controversial area because as you're writing about now, these type wells are how do you figure out what things should actually produce and what's realistic. And that's another thing this industry is struggling with is not only what what they'll do in the first year, but what they'll do after five years.
0: Yeah, well, I think it's I think definitely noteworthy of covering that. We are looking into sort of the type well, the type curves, you know, the technology that's going into that right now. What we're generally seeing is this convergence of sort of the financial world and the technical world, and they've lived, you know, in two different houses, and now they're roommates is sort of how you could describe this next decade. And it's, it's going to be very interesting to see how the terminology, the ways of looking at shale from all different angles, how they sort of merge together. And one of the last things I wanted to say when I was tweeting out this story I put like sort of a alternative headline there and I said, you know, shedding tears. And, and I wonder, you know, stories like yours are going to bring in an era where we just stop talking about these heterogeneous plays this way with such broad strokes.
1: It is a talking issue. And then the paper brought out that companies who are selling this simplistic version of reality are going to have to find a way to kind of recalibrate how they talk about it and say, look, these are genuine problems. You know, these are difficult wells. They don't produce a huge amount. We're not necessarily going to suddenly produce 30% of what's in the ground. And how are we working on these problems and how are we moving toward making enough money to keep investors happy?
0: So should we move to another area of unconventionals? Uh, heavy oil is considered an unconventional, well, right? Well,
1: it, it is something that's very hard to produce, and it it is economically tough right now because the heavy oil I'm writing about is in Western Canada, and Western Canada lacks the pipeline access, so American oil people will gripe about $55 barrel of oil. These guys are selling oil for $38 a barrel. Yeah. So the story was about an interesting company called Salamander, and they got a uh, heating cable. There's two aspects that make selling that heating cable hard. One is the price is low so that if you produce 50% more barrels, they're still not worth a whole lot. But the other problem is that what's new about with their cable isn't that it heats up the oil wells. It's that it doesn't break down like the cables did in the past. So don't you run into this like periodically that someone has a good new idea, but it's been tried before and it didn't work?
0: I think that defines oil and gas innovation to some large extent. I mean, even in this story, as I was reading it, you know, Shell developed this technology originally. I've written that line in uh, half a dozen technology stories where somebody's taking something that 20 years ago was put down hold, didn't work. And then all of a sudden that idea is given new life because materials and technology is a little bit better. And yet it remains a tough sell.
1: Yeah. The memories in this industry are really, really long. I mean, I remember the quote from Salamander was, you know, I talked to an operator, he said that when they put a cable down before, the performance was great as long as the cable's there, it broke down, he'd never use it again. Now, what's interesting is in this case they developed it to heat up wells at a lot higher, at 650 degrees. That was because Shell was trying to produce oil shale, which I have to go back to the magazine because I can never remember oil shale versus shale oil. Right. But oil shale is kerogen-rich rock where extreme heat can extract a lot of oil, unlike shale oil where it's just in really tight rock. And because it was this thing was designed to, to do 650 to Fahrenheit. The 300 Fahrenheit that they're going to be generating in these wells is not really a big challenge. And they say, and I think they make a convincing case that they can do it reliably and have not had a breakdown of the well because they were torture tested by Shell at it's Gasmer location, which actually is in my neighborhood, which I'm proud to know that a lot of innovations happened. Okay, in my house. and was it Southwest Houston? Exactly, in Southwest Houston. A lot of amazing stuff was uh, tested down
0: there. What's interesting to me is as I was reading this and thinking about, you know, analogies like you were kind of bringing up, one of them that hit me was like fiber optics. You know, it used to suffer from what they call darkening. The fibers would just, you know, basically turn black or, you know, not deliver data anymore. And these things were super expensive, permanent fiber optics installation still cost about a million dollars in some cases and that really uh, harmed uptake and then it got over that hump and darkening was more or less solved and now fiber optic is one maybe one of the fastest growing technology applications in the US different end outcome here than this kind of heating cable this is you know kind of like EOR in a sense I guess but after that hump you know
1: you might be poised for rapid adoption fiber has found a problem that then people needed to help solve and has found ways to be more cost-effective. In this case, it all began with a paper at the annual meeting where they talked about a 50% gain early on in a well at a shell development. But even though there was hundreds of other wells nearby, they never used it because the payoff just wasn't that large because of the low-price environment they were in. Mm -hmm. You know, they always say, don't use this in your dog well,
0: use it in your best well, because the gains will be even better. But that's an incredibly hard sell for operators to say, I'm going to experiment with my best well. No, I want to experiment with the one that I don't mind losing.
1: Exactly, exactly. And so that is their trick. I mean, 50% more of 27 barrels a day doesn't pay the bills very well so that that is the chick they have is can they find someone like the big sag d operas, different kind of heavy oil but they think that you could use that and speed up the initial production and maybe ultimately produce more over time and they that'll be tried and the other thing is the thing we're seeing over and over in the or it starts really good but it doesn't last that over time that you see the line of the uh, heated wells and the unheated wells kind of converge and don't you see it over and over in the or
0: yeah. And also here, you know, one of the things that we don't talk a lot about is sort of the CapEx side of things. And, you know, electricity is not free. And then, yeah. you know, these are already low yielding wells. And so even if you get you know some decent percentage of uplift, the bottom line is it's not going to maybe change the company's uh, revenue stream all that much unless you scale these things up. And that's usually where technology hits all sorts of problems. In the shale world, it's the cost of moving gas around and trying to inject it. And then in the heavy oil world, this thermal stuff, at least in this case, you know, electric prices in Alberta are somewhat higher than West Texas. Well,
1: actually, you point to a very good variable. That is a big one in terms of on their list of what wells you want to use it in. Yeah, you're out in some pretty extreme countries. So in some places they have grid priced electricity and that makes it possible Uh, but if they got to generate their own in the middle of nowhere that could be a real issue yeah
0: driving through texas we always see pump jacks and i always remind my wife those are not perpetual motion machines they have to have electricity to run and and when you see them stopped sometimes it's because you know the electric bill got too high so is there anything else for this one or do you want to move on to our our uh, final topic and take a quick break let's deal with destruction next We want you to join the discussion with us on social media. Uh, If you want to grab our attention, we're asking everybody to use the hashtag SPE podcast. All these stories are online. They're already in print. And in the show notes, we're going to put links to them so that you can go read them. Okay, Steve, so the last topic we were going to get to from the January issue of JPT was my story on casing failures in horizontal wells. If you're following this podcast, you heard a very lengthy one about casing failures with one of the sources, George King, who's a consultant, the leading voices, leading experts in the shale world in general on a whole host of topics. I think this deserves an extra look and JPT, and that's why we, we wrote a big feature about it because A there's a lot of people talking about it. And B, as we see with some of these emerging issues, there's not a lot of technical information on this. You know, if you were going to go Google uh, for a list of best practices to avoid casing failures, I mean, we're talking mostly about the lateral part of these wells, you're not going to find a big, you know, what to do list or a big
1: list of best practices. Are there any obvious questions right now that everyone's trying to answer? Is it just a matter of just what is the, the extent of the problem and where is it?
0: Yeah, so there's two ways of I kind of look when I came and approached this report, there's people in the community that haven't heard of this issue. And so for those folks, what we're talking about is the casing will deform somehow during the frack job. So you know, as hydraulic fracturing is taking place, at some point, you could have the casing oval can it kind of get squeezed. You can have uh, holes be formed through sand erosion from leaking plugs. So sand's flowing under a plug and it's creating a little erosion path and it's just eating away to steel like tissue paper. And so on the cover, we have images of that exact phenomena where it's actually putting literal holes in the casing. And then you have other cases where it squeezes so far down, you can't get another plug in. Maybe you can get a perforation gun. But you can't get a plug in and then you have the most extreme cases where the pipe is cut so this could happen at a thousand feet from the toe this could happen five thousand feet in the middle of the lateral and you lose a ton of wellbore so there's lots of causes lots of outcomes so it's not just one monolithic issue the pictures
1: are pretty dramatic you'd look at and think well you must know that's going on down there but what's the reality of how do people experience this as a service? Is this taking a long time to come around because people just don't know that stuff is there? Well, so it's not something that you report to any sort of regulator. So that's one
0: reason why there's not a lot of public data or good statistics on this. Some people think in the U.S. there are certain places where it's 20 to 30% of the time. These pictures on the cover were taken by a startup in uh, based in Vancouver called Dark Vision. They use an ultrasonic logging tool, mm-hmm. essentially, to go and take the image of the inside of the well bore. These holes, they saw in their very first job a few years ago. And they've only been in about 100 plus wells. And they've seen this, you know, fairly commonly. And I think in that first well, they told me, and it's in the story, five holes in a well with about 20 or 25 stages. Well, so that's a pretty good percentage
1: of having, you know, these failures. The fact that these guys are kind of doing, doing pretty good from what I can tell for a startup suggests that there's not a lot of ways to look inside of a dirty well and see anything. Yeah, so there's other companies
0: that require you to have a clear fluid to send a uh, camera down there. So we're talking about the folks from EV and others. We've seen really good papers, really good research come out of this, mostly around perforation erosion studies, right. and that's actually how these images from Dark Vision were acquired. The company was using them initially just to study the perfs, and then they they were going down there. These guys don't have a uh, hardcore oil and gas background, so they said we saw some really big holes. We don't think they're perforations because they're not where the perforations <laughs> were supposed to be. At least what you guys told us, they were where plugs were. So that's one case of these kind of events happening. I've heard subsequently, like in sort of in the, the hallways of conferences, at the annual meeting, you know, people were talking about this same problem. Um, it was referred to in papers on China, where this problem is happening sometimes 40% in the field, uh, the Sichuan Basin, which is sort of their well, Permian Basin. to China to learn about that, right? Yeah, I, I was learning mostly just about the geologic challenges of developing shale in China, this issue didn't actually come up until I started researching it. Hands down, the Chinese researchers, university students and operators have written the most amount of information on this or produced the most information on this. They're seeking answers. And one of the reasons is it's very severe there. And so in China, a lot of people think that it's the tectonics. You know, they, they have plug issues too, but they see shearing events where the well is just cut in half in the lateral during the frack job. And, and that's when that happens, it's that's gone. It's
1: easy to know you did it there.
0: Yeah, I mean, there, there are some signs. Yeah, other signs and other ways, as you pointed out, it's kind of hard to notice that these things are happening until you jam up a plug. Now, does technotics play a role in where this is a worry here? I mean, is uh, it a
1: bigger deal? In it hasn't the, come
0: up in my reporting in the United States as much. It has in Argentina. What, what's similar between Argentina and China? Well, the Szechuan Basin in China is sort of in the shadows of the Himalayas. Everybody knows what those are. And then the Vaca Muerta in Argentina is in the shadow of the Andes. And so wherever you have mountains pulling up the tectonics, like sort of like a uh, tent, you have unique stresses that you don't have in most U.S. shale plays. Because if you look at the Permian, it's sort of known for being very flat. You look at the Eagleford in South Texas, also pretty flat go up to the Bakken, there's some hills, but you know, no giant
1: mountains. But Canada though is gonna get
0: to. Canada has more tectonic activity, but again, that issue, that specific cause didn't come up so much with my reporting in Canada, but also the one that came up the most here in the United States, and George King has stressed this over and over, is the, it starts with drilling. And so if you have a uh, highly undulating well bore with a bunch of sharp angles, you're gonna create point loading and all sorts of stresses. So, you know, to sum up my quick ramble here, There are a lot of reasons why this can happen. There's a lot of outcomes of when it does happen, and there are very few ways to fix it. It's very hard to predict. Just using thicker steel on some of this casing is not the ultimate solution. And what people think is the solution is just doing the full boat here of taking in all of the geomechanical properties of the area you're drilling into trying to drill the smoothest well bore when you're fracturing, not blindly doing it, but sort of looking for these telltale signs, looking for if you have a hole in the casing, maybe you have a pressure drop, or you actually never get up to the rate you wanted to. Well, that means you have a, you know, a leak somewhere, right? So trying to holistically look at the earth and, and how all of the operations fit into how it's going to react, that sort of seems to be where people are talking about. One other thing I'll, I'll say here is that the modeling efforts, you know, are, are very nascent. So there's not one piece of software that operators can go to and put in all the inputs that they have available and then get sort of a plan of action for preventing casing failures. And at the fracturing conference, which is less than a month away from today,
1: what do you, what do you expect they'll be talking about?
0: Well, they're going to have several operators there, folks from ConocoPhillips and XTO and others, uh, I believe BP's on there and in we're going to have a three hour panel session where these operators present case studies and the organizers of the event have been working for several months, maybe a, a close to a year on trying to get operators to come to the table, specifically U.S. and Canadian operators to come to the table, you know, show your cards, tell us what you know about this problem. And at Urtech they had one and, and George mentioned it during the podcast and we wrote about it in the story. Uh, it was a standing room only room for a panel discussion, and, and there weren't that many operators on that panel. But I believe there was like 300 people there, and they stayed for a couple hours. This one's going to be three hours. There's going to be no competing events. It's the third day of the Hydraulic Fracturing Technology Conference in the Woodlands, first week of February. And on that third day, there's no show floor. um, There's no exhibition down there anymore. They cut that off about one. All casing failure Yeah, and no more papers, all casing failure for three hours. So you know I'll be in that room taking notes, and so we're going to do an update
1: to this and share what the operators are sharing. Uh, Yeah, the way it does seem like the early days of uh, frack hits where people are just saying, you know, I'm an operator and I have frack hits. I kind of
0: phrased this on LinkedIn. I said, you know, as opposed to frack hits, the call is coming from inside the house, if you remember that scary uh, line there. Frack hits are usually characterized as events between two or, or more wells interacting. This is largely seen as a intro well event. So this is that one well doing it to itself. Now, infill drilling and depletion and fluidizing sections of rock all can play into this, but really it's about that one well, uh, well bore what's happening inside it. And the other thing that's different for me after covering frack hits for three or four years, when the frack hit problem arose, it became clear very quickly that it was a systemic issue. I don't think everybody saw that. But what we started to see that because of where the technical information was coming from, and one Petro and at the conferences, you started to see it didn't really matter what stripe you were as an operator, you were you were having this problem. I will say as I've been beating the street for the last couple of years looking for, you know, the next big challenge, this one sort of came out of obscurity for me. So I actually haven't met as many people at this early stage that are talking about this as I did when I was first reporting on hits. So it remains to be seen how big of an issue casing failures is, but some of the numbers, like I said, that are being shared are significant enough you have China saying this happens at 40% of some of our fields. And you have George King saying he's seen data from operators suggesting that in certain fields in the US, which he has not named 20 to 30% of the time, some type of casing failure, some type of casing deformation happens. And when we put this on LinkedIn, somebody commented that they've seen this before, they sounded like a field operator or a field hand. And they said that they would just run the gun through the deformation because the gun has a slimmer profile than a plug and just frack a giant stage you know they didn't really get specific on how long but you can imagine if you if you hit a block and you know you could be trying to frack a stage that's you know 300 feet long
1: it's like a perf as big as a sewer cover
0: something like well you you still want to get your stages in right but you can't isolate them so you're going to do this giant cluster i guess just because you get your stages in so totally not a perfect remedy but it shows you how
1: people are sort of having to adjust on the fly in the field well you know when i've written about drilling there's always this thought that well if you had better hole quality it would be valuable but it's really hard to put a, a number on it. it seems like with frackets the initial thing was oh there's this horrible destructive event but then the more they looked at it, the more they realized subtle useful things about it it's possible that over time they'll realize that you know if you do certain things better to well that you have longer term benefits that yeah, you i'm know, not not so dramatic but useful and just add a little bit to that, you know, that difficult to add thing, which is uh, unconventional results. You know, I kind of mentioned, I, I
0: think that like uh, taking a holistic approach to shale, like doing everything right and doing everything for the same purpose, like in unison, you know, we always talk about the disconnect between drilling and completions and, you know, everybody out there that's worked in the shale, they, they know what I'm talking about there. Bringing those all together so that drillers think about undulating well bores is sort of where the shale business needs to go per a lot of experts, you know, especially George King. And if you look at frack hits, a driller, you know, there's a couple operational things you can take frack hits while drilling. But you know, for the most part a driller is not super concerned with frack hits not thinking about them when you start saying that my casing's buckling or it's over torquing or we're having point loading and because of that when i actually do pressure up and frack i'm having issues i'm having deformations my casing's losing its integrity well in then, you, then you can blame you can, you can tell the driller hey you know we need straighter wells like you can you know that matters to we, them we
1: need a well where you we can cement it properly too which is another issue that if you want the well to last
0: Yeah, bad cement jobs came up in this too, and uh, I should have mentioned that, but that five, six years of beating the street with uh, shale producers, you'll hear a lot about poor cement jobs. It's just very difficult to do in the lateral section. It was cementing technology as it is, was never meant to really fully cover the casing ones that's in that lateral section. And so if you don't have something fully supported, then you get problems. And we know that those are problems also in the uh, vertical section of these wells too. And not in this story, but there's a company just north of here in Houston called Deep Imaging, and I visited their office for another story, actually it was a frack hit diagnostic report, and they were showing me images, electromagnetic images of fluid moving up and down the casing during the frack job, and I asked them, well, what is that? And they said, it's two things. It's either bad cement and the fluid's moving you know, under the pipe in between the rock, or it's a bad plug. Another company has sort of verified almost by accident, just by observing what's happening. They were trying to watch the fluid move in the yeah. formation. Well, they
1: saw it moving up and down the pipe. And that's also been something they've seen over and over on uh, fiber optic. Cause I guess that shows that we'll have plenty more to talk in future shows here. Yeah, yeah, so
0: we'll wrap it up there. You know, if you haven't read these stories, please go online, visit us on JPT and read them. Also check your mailbox uh, for your print issue if you haven't gotten it. Uh, and as always, we want to hear from everybody. so look for us on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook. Leave us your comments, take a minute to rank us on whatever podcast platform you like to use. And of course, check JPT online for new content all the time. I'm Trent, I'm Steve. We'll see you next time. HPE Podcast is powered by the Society of Petroleum Engineers, whose vision is to advance the oil and gas community's ability to meet the world's energy demands, in a safe, environmentally responsible, and sustainable manner. Learn more at SPE.org.